Well, Cross Chatters, I just want to welcome you to this week's show. We have Danielle Del Sol talking about the fabulous Preservation Resource Center tours this weekend. And uh, part two of Kent Jordan uh, talking about his father, Kent Jordan, who just passed, but also about the changing music scene and how it responds to um, the changes in our community. I think you'll enjoy it. I know we can make it. I know that we can. I know darn well that we can work it out. Well, yes, we can. No, we can, can. Yes, we can, can. Oh, why can't we? If we want to, yes, we can, can. I know we can make it work. I know we can make it if we try. Oh, yes, we can. I know we can, can. Yes, we can. We got your mind. Oh, yes, we can. I know we can, can. So, Danielle Del Sol, who has the privilege, honor, and um, challenge of being the head of the Preservation Resource Center, which has been a critical factor in the survival of the heritage of our city. And since when I first came here and my husband was um, planning the bridge and, and uh, as you know, uh, did the the neighborhood uh, plan identified the 70 some neighborhoods and and uh, created the HDLC. Um, I was a reporter during that time at WDSU, so I was covering it. Wow. And, um, and so it, I was very uh, engaged in, in, in the process of the development of the PRC in, yeah. in a, from from the other side of the fence, so to speak. Yeah. But it's it's really been critical. And, and the uh, tours that you have been doing year on year um, have been really, really important, I think, in helping people understand the breadth of um, our historic neighborhoods and uh, really experience them in the, their microcosms. Yeah. So um, let's talk about this week. See, so it's going to be this weekend. And yeah. um, give me first, let's start with the details, then we'll come back and uh, end with them as well. Yeah. Then we'll talk about uh, what you're trying to do with this particular tour. Well, so... Jean, you'll appreciate this. The Spring Home Tour uh, was originally called the Shotgun House Tour, and we started that tour over 20 years ago. And, you know, you and your husband were really involved in saving the Shotgun House as a, as a type. And the whole point behind the tour was to prove to people that shotgun houses were still worth saving and still worth living in. And at that time, you know, they were just seen as easy targets for demolitions. Um, because a shotgun house is not necessarily conducive to modern life um, as people might want to live it. You know, you have to walk through bedrooms, there's no hallways. Um, it's, they're just, they're compact. It's a compact way of living. And so our home tour was started to showcase the various ways that people have renovated shotgun houses to make them amenable to modern living or to living with a family. Um, and it was wonderfully successful. And the whole point is to inspire people. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun getting to poke around in other people's homes um, and to see the creativity that people in our city live with when it comes to being stewards of our historic architecture, but also bringing, bringing the historic architecture into, you know, the 21st century. So we've evolved the name of the tour to our spring home tour so that we can um, incorporate other types of architecture 
we do have a beautiful double shotgun house on the tour, but we also have raised basement homes, a, a center hall cottage. So, you know, we're different New Orleans architecture types. Um, and, but the thing that's fabulous about all of the homes is that they were all lovingly restored. Um, one of the houses actually is mostly new construction, um, but it was originally like a mid-century, not originally, but it was a mid-century modern kind of ranch brick house that um, th there wasn't much worth saving except the piers. So, you know, the, um, the owners recycled some of the brick and the structural elements and um, built new on top of it, which is interesting too. It's, you know, recycling what you can, I think is always a great thing. Um, so the tour is this weekend, April 22nd and 23rd. And the very fabulous thing about this tour is that we're straddling not one, but two neighborhoods. So we, we are not limiting ourselves uh, this year. We are in the Parkview Historic District and also uh, Bayou St. John. And so it's really wonderful to get to explore both, um, both neighborhoods. And we are conveniently headquartered at Cabrini High School. So right in front of the bright blue Magnolia Bridge, you can literally walk between the two neighborhoods and we're hoping that the weather is gorgeous and that, you know, people will have a wonderful time just exploring those two very special neighborhoods. Well, I think it uh, sounds like uh, you may have a little bit of um, uh, in and out cloud and sunshine on Saturday, but uh, brilliant sun sunlight on Sunday. So I think it, 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 it uh, augurs well. I think it'll yes. be. Hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit more about the two neighborhoods and um, some of the housing uh, in it that uh, you're sh showcasing. Um, the story that caught my eye, of course, is the one about the house that um, the couple who was looking to uh, inhabit a historic structure and 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 uh, reveal it um, uh, saw a house that didn't look that interesting on the outside, and then they started. They walk into it and they find this seven foot wide central hall and said, wait a minute, this is a <laughs> the central hallway house. And then they kept peeling the layers back and they found. Mm -hmm. They found a home from the early 19th century. So just <laughs> amazing. I mean, it was nothing, like you said, nothing to look at on the outside. It was just kind of a typical 20th century craftsman sort of situation. Um, and then when they started peeling back the layers, they realized how truly old and special this home was. And it couldn't have been a better couple to have purchased and renovated this property. It's um, Mike Bertel who owns Inhab, which is a construction firm. And he owns a mill shop where he specializes in doing um, you know, modern mill work, but that is historically accurate. Um, and so he's just brilliant at his trade. And so um, you're gonna love the way that they have transformed this home and really bought, brought its history back to life. What, uh, what about it in particular was one of your favorite elements? Um, I think, well, I just love the story. And I also am such a fan of the location. Grand Route St. John is, you know, one of the oldest passages in the city. That's something that's so just moves me about that neighborhood is the natural ridge, the Esplanade Ridge, and how, you know, long before the European settlers came, this was an area of commerce and trade um, with the Native American residents here. And that so this, this area has been... Um, you know, there's been life in this area for centuries, and um, that's really inspiring. And um, it, it, it's really what I think is interesting about it, too, is that it has had these cycles of life mm -hmm. from 
the, the way it was utilized by the Native Americans and then passed on to the Europeans and passed on to the younger generations who have fallen in love with um, both, you know, Treme, Bayou St. John, um, the Seventh Ward, that this whole complex of neighborhoods, it's not one, it's, it's several. Exactly. It's fascinating to think about, you know, the Petod House, which we're actually um, going to, you're going to be able to visit the Petod House on Sunday as part of our tour. Um, uh, you know, it's fascinating to think about that the mayor of New Orleans once lived there because that was the country. <laughs> he would go out to his country house on Bayou St. John uh, to escape, you know, the city, which at that point was the French Quarter. Um, so it's really, it's just really wonderful to imagine and, and to see, like you said, the different generations, you can really see that on Bayou St. John, you have the incredibly old homes like the Petod House that literally date from the late 1700s. And then you, you know, you get into the cottages, the center hall cottages, the Creole cottages, you see shotguns and then all the way to modern, you know, Cabrini is a pretty modern school. Um, and so really kind of all generations of architecture and ways of life um, are represented in those neighborhoods. And it's really wonderful to see evolution and, and all of it living harmoniously somehow. And, and now you're really beginning to see even, um, you know, really kind of cutting edge architecture uh, sprinkles amongst uh, the other homes, which is something that about this city always um, just invigorates me is just something to love that uh, from house to house uh, again you're looking at so many different eras and centuries and and uh, it's it's very forgiving all the neighborhoods are very forgiving it's okay you want spanish mission all right go ahead right like arts and crafts go ahead do you want old french what do they call it when you have the wood um a parent in the in the in the I forget what the word is for it. But oh, the brick you, between post. Thank you. Yes, uh, yes, you have that, and and then again now you have these really um, virtually avant-garde houses mixed in with it. So, what are some of the other houses on the tour? You're going to see um, the Carey home, which was a beautifully uh, restored center hall cottage that is now home to uh, a couple and their two children and dogs. Um, and so it's very much, you know, these aren't, you know, kind of stayed homes that nothing ever gets touched. You know, these are very much real homes of real people um, who have busy lives, uh, but they renovated this house on the bayou for their family. And I think it's just really delightful. Um, there's a, um, a, a raised basement home that a couple acquired from the archdiocese that was used as a nunnery for many years. <laughs> yeah, and so, and that's fabulous. Um, um, Erica Gates and her husband, Robert, um, they live in the Parkview neighborhood. They're in another raised basement home um, and they are really fantastic collectors of all sorts of knickknacks and historical artifacts. Um, he works for the Historic New Orleans Collection She's a historic preservation consultant. And so that's just their bag, you know, and so their house is charming, but they also have lots of really cool stuff to check out inside. Um, and so it's just a wonderful eclectic mix of different types of families um, and, and the ways that they live. So um, one of the interesting challenges today uh, to go just a step um, deeper into the, the issue of our neighborhoods 
and the tour of these wonderful houses and neighborhoods um, is that we have this uh, dialogue, let's call it, between, um, again, the, the uh, heritage of the city and um, what some folks would call um, gentrification. Okay. And gentrification is a, is a really um, interesting uh, opportunity and challenge that I, I and, and you'll have to inform me because you know a lot more about it than I do. But so far, I am not seeing the depth of innovation uh, to marry that heritage and the um, instincts of new folks coming into a neighborhood. Um, and there is a challenge to those who once owned the properties in terms of their ability to continue to afford them as the values of the homes increase, the taxes increase, the insurance increases and so forth. Um, so where, where is the PRC on all this? Have, have you all been researching? Do you have any strategies to address this? Um, or, or tell me where someone has figured out a truly valuable way of dealing with this on behalf of both the older residents and the new ones. I, I always look for where, where is the, where is the uh, opportunity for a unified response and, and, and approach to something? Yeah, it's such a complex topic, Jean. And, um, you know, I don't have an answer for who's figured it out, but I think that there has to be some level of municipal or state intervention to um, mitigate displacement measures. You know, the, the improvement of an area is, for the first step of it, it's great because you see improved property values. And so in theory, this should benefit homeowners. But then when that is followed by increased taxes um, and, you know, other burdens that come with new, you know, new people coming in, buying the homes of long-term residents, um, you know, neighborhood changeover where the culture starts to, to suffer because people who have lived there for generations are, are, are leaving. It's a huge, huge problem. And for years, the PRC tried to mitigate that problem, you know, but tried to improve neighborhoods through our Operation Comeback program, which would acquire blighted and vacant property, fix it up, and then sell it often to first-time home buyers. And at the same time, they'd work in the same neighborhood with the Rebuilding Together program, which at one time was called Christmas in October, for those who might remember that program. And they'd give free home repairs to low-income homeowners um, living in that very same neighborhood. So the idea was they can attract new residents and fix blight um, and improve property values, but hopefully you know, the free home repairs they give to low-income homeowners who live in the neighborhoods will help them stay in place and benefit from the property value increases instead of just being penalized by that. There's nothing that, you know, we did, unfortunately, to mitigate the property tax value changes. And that's a problem that, you know, we struggled with. And it's really hard to go to the city and ask for more tax abatements when the city is perennially, you know, broke. Um, they don't want to, you know, give any more um, tax breaks than they need to. So it's really a difficult situation. We don't have those programs anymore. We've replaced them with a program that we call Revival Grants, where we go and, and give free home what repairs. Grant? It's called Revival Grants. And so the idea behind that program is that we wanna support homeowners who live in historic districts 
And what PRC does is, is we help low to moderate income homeowners who have HDLC violations. And we take the violation notice and use it as a work scope. And the PRC pays to fix all the things on the work scope. And we have a wonderful relationship with the HDLC where we can go to them and say, okay, we've paid to fix all these things on this house. Will you please forgive this homeowner's fine? And so that has worked several times and, and we're really lucky to have this great relationship with the city to enact this program. We started the program in Treme, but now it's open to all residents of all historic districts in the city. So, um, you know, that's something that we're doing to try and combat gentrification in New Orleans. But I will say that the short-term rental proliferation throughout the city changed the game. Because when you take homes and suddenly you turn them into businesses, the metrics for what, who's buying the homes and how much they're worth is it completely explodes. And that's a, you know, a, that's a problem that I don't know how we recover from. So I have the uh, Zoom problem of having an arrival at the house and a uh, blue healer <laughs> who has taken on a self-appointed himself the job and going um, so uh, you might hear some bars for a minute here as uh, an arrives. <laughs> um, so what is uh, uh, that that's uh, I'm glad to know about that program and I want to look more into it and um, what um, what would you say besides addressing this which is definitely an existential issue for our city and so many others it's it's a worldwide yes. it's not just here yeah. um, but um, Besides that, what would you say right now are your priorities that you are basically doing these tours as, as a fundraising to support your nonprofit initiative? So what would be an initiative, for example, that you're in the middle of right now that you uh, are, that's important that you would like people to help you um, support? Well, in addition to revival grants, which we're really proud of and, and is really important to us, we um, have started classes just to help everybody who owns a historic home understand how to maintain their historic property. And so this is everything from- Sign know, me up. Sign <laughs> <me> up. <laughs> You've been to my house, right? Stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's always something. Listen, I love historic houses, obviously, um, but I will be the first to admit when you live in a historic house, it's always something that's happening. And it's not intuitive. You can't just go to a big box hardware store and figure out what to buy and how to fix this stuff. It's really complicated. Then you add in things like termites, you know, hurricane prep. Oh, they're just coming in and drove <laughs> at the moment. Um, yeah, you scare away those termites. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, freezing pipes in the winter. Um, there's, there's so much to know about how to take care of your historic property. And so we've started a whole series called Maintain Right. We already had two, two series. Maintain Right. Maintain Right. Like uh, we had Buy Right and we had Renovate Right. Those were two series we've done for years. But for people who've already bought or maybe renovated or, you know, they're living in the house now, how, how do you keep it up? How do you address specific issues? And so we've been offering classes every month um, to educate homeowners or even renters or landlords um, on these topics. And we are working on renovating, not renovating, but you know, fixing up our physical headquarters in the warehouse district to truly be a resource hub so that pe when people have questions, they can come. You know, 
everything we have is online on our website, but, but we get sick of that. We, you know, it's wonderful as a tool, but like, there's a point where you want to talk to somebody in the flesh <laughs> and get real advice. I'm in a proponent of, um, of talking to people in person and on the phone as opposed to in texts. Absolutely. I completely, we're on the same page. So we're in the process of fixing that up. And by this summer, we're going to have kind of open office hours where a few times a month you can come in and talk to a contractor or talk to an architect about what's going That's on great. with your property. And um, we're, you know, we really are excited to offer that as a service to our community because, you know, we want people to stay in their homes. It's getting harder and harder to do so, like you mentioned, with all the pressures regarding rising property taxes and insurance rates and, and materials costs. And materials costs. That's crazy right now. Absolutely. I, I hope that's going to break somehow. I don't, I don't know if we can go back on that. Does do does that? Is there is there um, a return to an, uh, some kind of prior normalcy, or is this just going to continue to escalate? I don't have an answer for that, but it, things have not gotten much better yet, and we're we're what a year and a half out of Hurricane Ida, so yeah. it's yeah. it's not you know it's difficult. Pandemic, yeah, yeah. Well, it's I, I love what you're doing. That's that's a really I love that program. Just you know, renovate right and um, maintain right now. That's a that's a great idea. I'll I'll, I'll have to check in on that because okay, oh my God, do we have <laughs> maintenance issues in this uh, old house? When we bought this in 1972 for a phenomenal price in today's uh, standards. Um, okay. um, and and we you know knocked out a few walls and you know uh, we actually um, we actually sandblasted the ceiling in the living room. The house had had a fire. Oh wow! And so this beautiful cypress uh, ceiling um, in in the living room was covered with a drop ceiling, so we didn't know what was behind it. We take that down, and it was all char. So I asked a friend of ours, an architect actually, who does preservation work, what do we do? He said, hmm, sandblast it? Sandblast it? We said, okay. Really? We did it and it is beautiful, beloved. So there are, there are ingenious and surprising ways that one can deal with, with renovation. Oh. Now, one thing I would counsel people who buy an old house and has old features, that they may not be used to. I was not used to the kind of detail in this house. I'm coming out of an apartment in New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm used to white walls and, and yeah. paintings, but not to um, what I call gigaw. So I'm telling my husband, take that out, take that fireplace out and take out that molding around the windows. Oh, and no. Unfortunately, he was like the kind of guy who will say, okay, whatever you want. <laughs> um, I deeply regret that, and also regret that what we tore out, we threw away. Oh God, Jane! Yeah. So, uh, my counsel to folks is: when you get into a house and there's some detail that may not be in tune with your current aesthetic, mm -hmm. give it a little, give it a minute. Give yeah. It a minute. Or yeah. understand the house and, and see how it fits and how your accommodation of it may fit. And as it turns out, there is a single thing in this house, except food, that's new. <laughs> Everything is from 
flea markets and, oh, and cool. antique shops and auctions. And so it's all old from periods from way back to the Art Deco, to the modernist 50s, to the oh, contemporary. Is, you know, and, and I think that's the fun of New Orleans that again, mm -hmm. we've learned how to um, bring all these uh, together. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Danielle, and I hope it's a big success. If you come and buy tickets at the door and mention that you heard this segment on WBOK, we will give you $5 off your ticket. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for everything you do. And always remember to call us um, and encourage us to cover what you're doing and give people um, the awareness level they should have of what, what you're up to. Great to see you. Thanks All again. Right. Great. Bye-bye. a quote in some publicity material put out by the uh, tourism industry. Let's just leave it at that. Okay. Uh, that talked about the importance of, quote, using music to promote tourism. Mm -hmm. I, I really was not comfortable with that statement. And it recalled for me you know, I, I'm actually in the business in a way of promoting the commodification of the arts, because I believe that we're not supporting the arts in the broadest uh, definition, the creative industries, mm -hmm. uh, performing visual installation, design, um, writing, literature, culinary, all of the whole full range of creative activity. Mm -hmm. We're not promoting we're not supporting we're not investing in that in new orleans sufficiently to to um encourage what seems to be i you you, you kind of feel this um push for greater uh um production of creative uh material mm -hmm. And uh, yet there's, you feel this kind of lid on it that is caused by the lack of financial support. Um, partially a product of the fact that we're not exactly the most entrepreneurial place on earth. So we don't have the kind of um, wealth that often supports art. Arts and wealth go together, let's face it. I mean, yes. you back in history, uh, when, a, when a country or a, um, uh, part of the world grows in its economy, you watch the arts as a, as a side effect. It, mm -hmm. it emerges and, and we don't have enough of that here. But so you, you feel like there's this sense of the potential explosion is kind of like, I don't know, some sort of potential, is it fission? Is that the right word? Fusion. Uh, uh, a vision, yeah, vision. No, vision. Yeah. You're right. Vision. They're splitting up an atom. Yeah. Uh, and and yet, um, it it just seems constantly to be a tension that it could happen. It's kind of happening, and it should happen. But um, there's there's some sort of drag on it. I'll never forget once Johnny Vodakovich said this to me when we were doing the um, uh, Dewdrop at the, at the Contemporary Art Center way back in the seventies. 
um, he said that when musicians leave New Orleans and go elsewhere to play, initially or in some sense, their music has a kind of almost Mickey Mouse quality because when you're in a different environment, it, it um, physical, just plain physical environment, not cultural, but physical. It's the, there's less of some kind of physical drag on your music that's created by being in a, uh, I think it has something to do with being below sea level. And <laughs> you go someplace that you're above, much further above sea level. And so you're playing as faster. And, and that stuck with me all these years. I'm saying, wow, that's so interesting. But at the, uh, but it, it, it and, and in, in a sense of the growth of a genre of music here now, there's a different kind of drag. And that's that drag of maybe just, as you said, a little bit too much education and hot codification. And um, I don't know what else. I don't really understand it totally, but it just feels like, the things that I grew up with, I mean, you know, um, you've mentioned some people that were Miles Davis, that was Miles Davis at MJQ. Those were <laughs> the, the, that was the kind of music as a teenager, literally oh. in high school, that I gravitated to. It was very understandable. It was very, um, I don't know, it was uh, very special music. And, um, and now I can't identify some trend in the music that I'm, I'm sure is happening because there things happen underground for a long time before people find out that they're there and happening. So that's why I ask you the question, what is happening that I don't know about? There's got to be some new um, trends, threads, uh, creative um, uh, uh, energy that uh, is developing hope <laughs> well i mean hope it springs eternal you know but you, you, you have to understand gene i mean even though you know things are a lot more efficient is what you're describing in terms of the the economics of this that hasn't really changed except for you know it's a lot easier but it's still it's, you're still facing some of the same hurdles you know, musicians have to make money, right? They have to support their families. They're going to enter that. And so it's changed. I mean, most major performers now, whether you're talking about Beyonce or you're talking about Taylor Swift or whoever you want to describe, Madonna, I mean, they understand, right? The commodification of music has really changed their model, right? So they're making their living playing live performances. They're no longer making, you know, money selling recordings. And so for the jazz community, the recording was the thing, right? You kind of knew about Arnett Coleman, not because he played in New Orleans, because you could listen to his music in quote unquote, a vinyl form during that time, right? Or, you know, as great as John Coltrane was, he only came to New Orleans one time. So musicians knew his music, you know, through his recordings. You know, and so consequently, that's how you learn, right? Because there was no formal education, uh, you know, School of Miles Davis or John Coltrane. You listen to their recordings, you try to figure out what they were doing musically, and then some kind of way you try to imitate that or emulate that in your own music because this is this is what they were doing. Or develop it. Or develop it, right? Way. And so, and 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 with that, and what that leads to is a person having their own imagination, 
right? Because you're not going to, you know, as my good friend Wynton Marcellus would always say, you're not going to out Charlie Parker, Charlie Parker. You're not going to play like Charlie Parker. You're not going to play like John Coltrane or Miles Davis. And we understand that. So you're constantly trying to figure out what is, where's your place? And so it's not so much to help you out a little bit that was going on, right? You just have to like, just be quiet, be still, and just find your place where you are. That's what musicians do, right? Musicians have to find their place. And once you find your place, right, then, you know, you may have to go to somebody's house to see what you're doing. You may have to come over to my house to see what I'm working on or to see what somebody's thinking about or see what they're writing or what have you, right? Um, it's just a different time. And different time requires a different mode of, of thinking. And that's important, right? Because everything is not going to be the way that it was in the sixties and seventies. My dad was my dad was a real strong believer in that. Listen, the sixties, a, a strong believer in time and place, right? Mm -hmm. Really, really strong believer in that. He would always say, every generation, I'll never forget, has this music. So when the Beatles came along in the sixties and James Brown and all that thing, right? He wasn't. Why are they doing that? And, you know, that's, young kids they doing that. When rap music came into the fore, that's their thing. You know, I mean, he really, really, you know, it wasn't like, well, they need to learn about Charlie Parker, Coltrane, or they need to know about Beethoven. And it would be great, right? But he really, really, I'm telling you, he was a real stickler for that. Like, every generation has this music. And if you're going to find out about other types of things, maybe those other things might lead you to find out about other composers or other musics or other, you know, musicians or what have you. So he, he was a real strong believer in that. So, so tell me, um, who is doing something innovative, their own sound, their own voice in the city of New Orleans right now that you particularly uh, respect at the level that so many of us respect <laughs> well, in Kid Jordan? <laughs> well, see, that's the thing that I'm saying. Like, I'm not... When I personally, I mean, if I have to be honest with myself and I'm personally listening to somebody, I'm not listening for that. I'm just listening to what they're expressing, right? And I get it. I mean, in other words, you know, you might see something like um, I was listening to John Batista's music, you know, one of my former students. Uh, he was on um, Austin City Limits, right? And so I know he's trying to come up with some kind of hybrid type of thing, and he's trying to fuse all these different things together with the New Orleans sound, the things that he was doing in New York with his band, you know, that kind of thing. With the... And it's like, okay, well, there's something there, right? And you, you kind of have to like, you know, give some, you know, give a musician or a singer or whomever their space so that they can discover what it is that they're trying to do, if they're trying to do that. Right? Music is not an easy thing. You just can't say, okay, well, I'm being innovative, right? Uh, this is, the, you know, it doesn't work. Like, be innovative. Yeah, you know, no, it doesn't I, work. I, I get what you're saying. It, um, it doesn't, I mean, like, like I give you, I give you a classic example, like the great recording of Miles Davis with uh, Cannonball Adderley, John Coltrane, Bill Evans, Paul Chambers, Jimmy Cobb, you know, kind of blue. That is a similar recording in jazz music. If everybody, you talk to any jazz musician, uh oh. Has something happened? No, I'm sorry. No, we're okay. Oh, I lost you. I don't see you anymore. I'm I'm, I still see me. Can you uh, hear me? I, I can hear you, but I don't see you. That's, is that okay? Let me see something. Let me see something. Okay. 
it's all right. Let me see if it's gonna let me. Let's see if I do this. Uh, I like to see people when I'm talking to them. All right. How about that? If I'm, I wonder if I can make this bigger. No. Well, anyway, yeah. You talk to any any of the musicians, and um, you know, Miles Davis when he talks about that recording, it was just for that moment. I had those musicians. We had the studio. I had the music. Came in bringing new new music that we'd never played before, and boom! And like an atomic bomb went off. Right? It's like that is like one of the greatest recordings in jazz music. So. You know, they didn't think they were being innovative at the time. You just said, well, I'm bringing in this new music. I have these these musicians who I trust can interpret what it is that I'm trying to get to. And it just became sort of like the seminal recording that musicians look to as like a turning point in jazz music, right? So he, I'm, I, believe me, he didn't go into the studio saying, we're going to do this innovative record. <laughs> you know, I have these new tunes. <laughs> I want you to play differently and blah, 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 blah. That didn't happen that way, right? So things, in a way, kind of have to evolve on their own. And and you, you just have to wait for it. You, I, I, I guess I have to say like the famous uh, uh, Supreme Court Justice, I don't know who said this, but he said, um, you know, about pornography, you know it when you see it. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, Ken, tell me a little bit about um, your uh, uh, self and what you're doing. And um, I've always admired you as well. And um, you're being nice, you're being generous. Excuse me? You're being generous. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. And uh, it, um, I think it's, it's again, it's that personality um, issue with your dad that I, I perceived and uh, I called it flexibility earlier. I want to call it openness. Okay. <laughs> and that I would attribute to you as well. So while you're telling me that you can't predict innovativeness and you and and I accept that. Mm. Um, and uh, that there are threads. I, again, I assume that there are threads out there and there are atomic bombs that are <laughs> actually I used that analogy, didn't I, a few minutes ago where I said yeah. I feel this fissure that's going to happen is always that tension that's that something's going to you know there's going to be another um, um moment of music that's going to be really um important and extraordinary the music of louis armstrong's um first group i forget what they were called but you know his his small high uh, five <laughs> thank you and um that was that was another atomic bomb in in the, in the <laughs> yeah, world, right yeah so, well I'm gonna tell you, it's interesting that you use that word because once I was doing this um, interview, um, Branford Marcellus and I were had the privilege of, of being in the same room with Dizzy Gillespie. Uh, we were playing and, and uh, Diz was there and he was interviewing, um, in the, I forget, I think Jim Lehrer was for the nightly, I don't even, I, I see if they had that, that interview, it was really interesting. He was saying that, um, when uh, Charlie Parker, when he first heard Charlie Parker for the first time, he said it was like an atomic bomb went off. I'll never forget, he said, he said, wow. And he said something that was really interesting. He said, this is how music is supposed to be. But I'll never forget his expression when he said the first time he heard Charlie Parker, he said, why? He said, like an atomic bomb just went off. Like, why? you know, he couldn't believe he was hearing or seeing what he was hearing, right? 
Yeah. Right now, all we have is a bunch of drones out there in the middle. Of the <laughs> uh, we're going to get a that in, in uh, the music world. Yeah, um, but, so you know, but it's just, for me, it's just, you know, you just do your thing, right? You, you, you kind of have to, like, you know, take a lay of the land where things are. And you're right. I mean, so you... You, you look at, you know, because I was involved with the recording industry with Columbia Records and that whole thing and, you know, and doing my own, you know, recording on my own and doing different projects. And basically what you're describing is, you, you know, in a way, music isn't for everybody. The type of music that you do, like you described my dad music and you, you know, you were really digging it. Well, just as you dug it, there might have been like a, a thousand other people who would never dig it, right? Who would never want to get into it or try to understand it or try to listen to it or what have you. And that has something to do with where we are now in time and space, right? Because yet, as much as you want to, I hate to tell you this, but, you know, you have to really have a literate public, a republic or public or whatever, who understands certain things about literature, architecture, medicine, and you know education and you know you talked about entrepreneurship i mean you know those things really go hand in hand they're not separate and so whenever you're devoid of having some of those those crucial let's just say uh pillars of your community and the people are not really fully understanding those things then you get what you get and so you're going to get a very uninformed public or audience and to be honest with you, people just do what they do. They listen to what they listen to. They listen to what they understand. They're not trying to branch out. They're not trying to really understand, you know, what's going on, not only from a, a local perspective or regional perspective, but from a worldly perspective. And that's why, that's, that's why we have what we have now. That's the reason why, you know, democracies are in trouble or, you know, communities are in trouble. Because, you know, there's, there's a sense of, I hate to say this, but, you know, as much as people may be discontent, there's a sense of atrophy that's out there as well. And it's set in and people just, you know, they take what they take. They're not, they don't want to challenge it, you know. It becomes uh, very, it becomes uh, very familiar and, and, and that's it, I'm telling you. I mean, I can, I can, I can quote you, you know, verse <laughs> whatever the term is book and verse chapter what's, happen, what's happening you know that's going on i'm telling you it's 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 kind of scary in a way but it's what we have well the one thing i can say about that and a lot of other negative trends let's mm -hmm. take for example the political universe in our country today where there's this incredible um base ignorant hostility between parties rather than a dialogue about ideas and solutions. Mm -hmm. Yet, when you get a certain level, where, when that goes to where it can go with what happened, let's say in the Tennessee legislature where mm -hmm. a bunch of uh, retards <laughs> can't, you, you know- can't use that word anymore. <laughs> I, I I know, but you know what? Uh, uh, the Republicans who whose minds are buried in the past. When I use the word retard, I'm not supposed. I'm not talking about um, uh, um, 
Mentality so much is being tied to the past. And so they, they kick out these black legislators. Mm. That was one of the best things that happened politically in this country in a while, because, you know, I, I say the same thing about Trump. Trump has been a horrible, horrible um, leader of an era of, of uh, antipathy and um, hostility, but it pulled back the curtain on things that are going on. And, and I believe strongly that racism is a factor, but another factor is the loss of hope and expectation on the part of working people when jobs left this plant, left this continent and went elsewhere. And so I feel like the this, this incident in Tennessee was like, oh my God, is that where we've gone? It was a crescendo of this political um, invective that I believe is going to be part of a, a move of the pendulum. When things get really bad, in other words, then they have to evolve into the counteroffensive. And I believe and hope that we are on the cusp of a counteroffensive. So um, what's happening in music that you're describing, I think can that stasis can only last so long before yeah, some us through it. Right, but what I'm, what, I mean, but what I'm saying, what you described so so eloquently, what I'm saying to you is like, you, you have to understand, <laughs> you know, it's not like the people or the, this is, I, don't, I don't even like to use that like that, but the situation that you're describing is that people are informed about things. I mean, they informed them to the to the to the degree by which they're informed, right? The information loop that they're in, and what I'm telling you, I'm telling you, listen, is I, I know you, so I know that you're well versed. I mean, you have Frank Gary at your house, at your home. He's a friend. I, I was just uh, yeah, but no, but no, 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 but what I'm saying, no, but hold on one second. Though. How many people do you think even in New Orleans would know who Frank Gary is? I know. All right. I mean, so. You know, and then you can take that and then you go into literature, you know? How many people would know who uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates is, right? How many people would know, you know, who John Coltrane is at this point? Or Duke Ellington, right? And I'm what I'm saying is, I'm not saying that, you know, and so what's happened is that we've taken music, like my dad's music or anybody else's music or whatever. Philip Glass, let's just say Philip Glass. I was talking to a friend of mine about Philip Glass yesterday. You know, we've kind of codified this into some kind of elitism, and it's not. And so those same people who are, you know, that we're describing, right? You know, because when I was growing up, I mean, my parents made sure that I, you know, we read certain books, we listened to certain music, that, you know, what were you being educated in? You know, what, what subjects you, you need help in? Or blah, 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 blah. I mean, it was a real thing. And so education is not just about going to school. It's not, you know what I mean? Because you have to think about it. Once you, you know, you leave high school, if you choose to go to college, you know, you're constantly being educated. Right? And so that information gap that we have now, and I hate to say this, but that's what Trump was able to go into. He was able to go into like this misinformation, this disinformation, and tap into an emotional aspect of people's existence, right? 
that has nothing to do with how well they how poorly educated they are or how well they're educated or whatever the education is just purely emotional and so you can take well, advantage it's of people emotional, but it's people. also I, I i have been referring lately to an article that i read um, i read the new york times daily because mm -hmm. so do i <laughs> any thirster for my prior life in New York is I don't have any. I, I'm immersed in, in my life here. But um, I do feel that there's, um, there's, a, uh, a, there's a tendency for people to not, as, as you're saying in a way, be able to escape um, the facts of life of their lives. And, and when people don't have hope and, and uh, expectations of being able to progress, then things fall apart. And that's what I think has happened with too many kids coming out of our schools. They're not prepared for the kind of economy we have today. And, and um, they watch, on the other hand, there's so much media out there to see how the other side is living. So- um, But that's what, but that's what all is all about. Frustration. But that's what, but yeah, but that's what music does though. That's what music, that's the boy that music and literature and architecture and dance and song so you know those 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 things are those things are not just fillers, but those things are really like you said. You grew up listen to you know you grew up with Miles Davis and MJQ. Now, how many people know that MJQ stands for the Modern Jazz Quartet, and that you're talking about you know the great Mill Jackson? <laughs> you know what I'm saying, Connie K. They were they were just playing some of that on WWOZ last night, and well, there you go. I recognized the music, and I was saying, "Wow, yeah, I remember yeah. that." All okay, right. let me just say let me just say one thing. I'm about to run out of time, but I'll, I'll, right. I'll, I'll close on a lighter note for a minute and just okay <laughs> uh, uh, com communicate a little uh, a light a light motif <laughs> a light motif. So I'm getting on a plane, and All I right. fill up glass. Uh -huh. I say to him, Philip, I said, are you aware of the extent to which your music reflects rap? Mm -hmm. right? He was, he said, no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was insulted at my suggestion. And what I was talking about was that, and I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm no. No, say what you have to say. But there's a, there's a, there's a, a pattern of repetition, right? Right. Right. And actually, the, the, the grassroots of that repetition in Philip Glass's music goes back to Dickie Landry right. was doing reverb with his saxophone, mm -hmm. and he was part of Philip Glass's sort of um, universe at, a, at an initial point in time, and, and you hear that in Glass's music. So I didn't say that, because that would have, he might have kicked me off the plane, but um, it, without a doubt, there's a connection between that use of the repetition of sound in rap and in Philip Glass's music. He didn't see that at all. Well, so, but that's because that's the thing is, and what you're speaking to, right, is your own affinity for what you're listening to and what you hear. And, you know, like the French said, there's nothing new under the sun, right? So, I mean, he may not be familiar with rap music. Who knows? But the, the most important well, I thing. I think he was familiar. He was working in New York. So he knew what I was talking about. No, but but you know, but I'm telling you, sometimes you think people know what you're talking about, but they really don't. I mean, I, you know, you have to you have to kind really? of give him that grace, right? That he really was, you know, 
I'm telling you, sometimes musicians can get into their own little bubble and that's it. There's nothing else that's entering at that moment, right? And you can close, you can close yourself off. So, you know. But I still grapple with it. You know, the fact that I raised that that incident, that memory in, in the conversation that we're having tells you how stunned I was at his to see how his music connected with that popular genre of the moment. Right. Um, Kent, we have to talk more because when you were talking a minute ago about the importance of a creative experience in education, this is something incredibly important to me. And I've been too lacking in resources to achieve what I wanted to achieve with it. But I wanna share it with you because at this point, in my career, I'm, I'm focused on sharing ideas and thoughts and putting them out there and hoping somebody uses something that um, I've thought of because I, I'm, I'm going to run out of um, time and steam uh, to uh, build uh, castles that um, there's just not time enough to, to do. But um, I do want to mention two things. One, mm -hmm. uh, don't forget what I mentioned about Tannen and uh, Frank Gehry having a joint show. I believe it's going to be yeah. January now at the Oro Keefe Museum in Biloxi. Okay. I also want you to call out your dad's funeral because I have a feeling that funeral is going to be a major event. I mean, the folks who are going to turn out for that, it's not going to be just a bunch of uh, hosannas and memories. There's going to be some communication going on amongst the people who are going to turn out for that, that people should, again, listen to. So tell people the details on your dad's funeral that that's open to the public. Oh, about the Frank everything. No, 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 no. About um, your dad's funeral. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, oh, you want to talk? You want to talk now about my dad's funeral? I just, I, I just want you to put out there the, the details because. Oh, all right. Well, uh, oh, I see what you're saying. I'm and sorry. I don't want to. I don't want to miss out on the original reason for our conversation. Which <laughs> well, was yeah. Well, his funeral is going to be uh, this Saturday uh, at Gallia Hall. I don't have the address in front of me, but everybody knows what Gallia Hall is if you're from New Orleans. So I'm just going to assume that you know New Orleans is the center of the universe. So the old city hall, Gallia Hall, um, is going to be, the viewing will be from uh, 8 to 10.30, and the service is going to start at 11. Um, there's going to be a second line, which uh, he probably wouldn't approve of, but hey, it's New Orleans and it's just his friends. And then uh, there'll be a private burial just for the family. And then it's going to be at one o'clock from one to five, uh, a repass at the um, George Wing uh, Jazz and Heritage Center. So we're thankful for the Jazz and Heritage Center because, you know, my dad was a teacher there and evolved the school over many years. And, uh, you know, he, he loved his friends. He loved the, the music. He loved whatever anybody in New Orleans was doing. You know, he was very supportive. You know, and that's another thing that a lot of people don't realize about my dad. You know, whether you supported his music or not supported his music, he was going to support your music. He was going to support you as a musician, as an individual, and really encourage you to do what you wanted to do. Right. So I I, I love that about him that he he loved his students and you know just told them to go for it. You know, and and that's that's a really important thing. Ken. Um appreciate so much that you took the time just to, to uh, ruminate with me. And um, I look forward to our next conversation being a lot sooner. Okay. <laughs> and this one was till the last time we saw each other. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you, Gene. Take bye care. Bye. Take care. Bye bye. So that's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Cross Panel Conversations will be back next Friday at noon on WBOK Yeah.